Hey, I'm Cameron. <laughs> that is legitimately a first, that, that whistle. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, whoever did that. Um, yeah, it, I can't tell you what an honor it is to be here. Um, I know some of you, and the, those of you that I know, hey, Dan, hey, Valora. Uh, I'm not going to do that for everybody. Um, it is, it's so good to see some of you. Some of you I haven't seen in two years. We've had a global pandemic in between seeing some of you. Um, and there's a lot of faces I haven't seen before. So I'm stoked. I'm stoked about that fact. I'm stoked that you've come and found a church home here at Dorf Hope Northeast. Sometime, or Southeast, sometime in the last two years and some change. This church, Door of Hope, back when there was just the one, this, this was deeply important for my family, myself, my wife, now our two kids, uh, feeling home in this city. We've lived here almost, almost 10 years now, I guess, but Door of Hope was a huge part of that journey and a huge part of us uh, hanging onto and growing and nurturing uh, our faith in Jesus. And so, uh, if I, even if I don't know you, you mean the world to me by virtue of your association here door of hope southeast and it's an honor to be here haven't been here for a sunday in two years and two months about we started door of hope northeast march 1st 2020 which you know scholars maintain is the was the ideal window to start a church plant uh really in the last 10 years that was when you wanted to do it right then um but in all seriousness if you've been like looking for an update or something um the lord has been so faithful to us it's been so faithful we have held together, uh, we have maintained like self -su financial self-sufficiency from our first month as a community, and there have been some bumpy months in there, but the Lord has just provided what we've needed as this little com community growing over there in Northeast Portland. Um, people have come to the Lord, people have found home, people have uh, weathered really difficult seasons <laughs> of life together over there. Um, it's been beautiful. It's been wonderful. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. Some of you have reached out and checked in, and thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, all that to say, um, this is my first time here on a Sunday morning in two years and some change, uh, so it's a huge honor. Um, and as, I just want to say this. When you're, the, when you're now, it's funny being the guest preacher coming in here, um, I can say things like this, but I want to use that unique uh, opportunity to say this. As Josh White is on his sabbatical, which is a wonderful thing, and we've been praying as our elders and pastors at Northeast for Josh and for the church over here, just want to acknowledge that can sometimes be a, a vulnerable time for a church community. Um, and you're going to be hearing sermons from a, a greater diversity of speakers, and, and Josh's absence is going to increasingly be felt in some ways, but I just, my encouragement to you is to lean into this place as hard as you can, as hard as you can while Josh is gone. Um, be more present, serve more faithfully, give more generously, and come ready to encounter the Spirit of God together in community, committed more than ever before to the people sitting next to you. Do that. Do that. Um, amen? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's set up today's message as we continue into this uh, the spring and summer series on the parables of Jesus. And this... It always seems hokey to me. Maybe it seems hokey to you, but I think the hokiness is worth it. It's worth risking it uh, f for this one. So close your eyes. Close your eyes with me. For real. I really want you to try to imagine something. And uh, depending on how much you know about this world, you may have an easier or harder time doing it. 
But imagine it's sometime around the year 30 A.D. Okay, 30 A.D., just, just 2,000 years ago or so, and you are a resident of Israel or one of the immediately surrounding nations there. And word's gotten out that there's this intriguing and mysterious teacher. His name's Jesus of Nazareth. And you've heard he's been doing these increasingly impressive things, amazing things, even miraculous things. You've heard he's healed the sick. You've heard he's shown incredible power over demons. You've heard that he teaches with a unique authority that no one else (laughs) since the last of the Hebrew prophets centuries ago has had, and even more than that. You're hearing these things, And something gets stirred up in you. And you decide to take a journey. You decide to leave your fields, uh, the fields that you work for maybe two or three days journey on either side uh, to go to Capernaum to see and hear this Jesus. So you, you, you venture out, you go through wilderness perhaps, through small villages, through towns, you get to Capernaum. And when you get there, there's this huge crowd. You go, okay, this must be him. This must be where, where this is happening. And, and Jesus has gotten into a boat You see him on the water so that he can preach up towards the people gathering along this hillside, making a natural amphitheater. And it's a huge crowd. There's there's crowds constantly following Jesus. There's one here today when you arrive. The the energy of this crowd crowd is super exciting, maybe a little intimidating. So you weave your way through the bodies, and you settle in. You find your spot and, you, and you, you listen to this teacher, this Jesus, this miracle worker, perhaps this Messiah, if the rumors are true. And you want to listen as long as you can. So you're ready. Keep your eyes closed. Here's what comes out of Jesus' mouth. Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. And other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, and 60-fold, and 100-fold. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then maybe Jesus leaves a dramatic pause. Maybe he allows people to chew on what he's just said for a few minutes, and then maybe he begins telling another enigmatic story, and another, and another, and another. Okay, open your eyes. What's your reaction? You traveled three days. You left important days of work in your fields or whatever behind. You left your family, maybe. You left your your close community. And that's what you hear. Maybe you're thinking, I traveled all this way for this? You're confused, you're puzzled. Maybe you're more than confused. Maybe you're, you're ticked off. Maybe you're angry. Maybe all the work you've left undone comes flooding back to your mind. I left my family and a week's worth of crucial work, and this guy is just telling riddles. Maybe you decide that that's the very last thing you want to hear from this Jesus. You gather your things and you go home. You start the journey back. 
Or, maybe you're intrigued. Maybe you find yourself oddly compelled by this story. Even though you don't know exactly why he's telling it or, or what it means, you're intrigued. And a few days later, as you make it back to your small farm, this image of this sower is rattling around your, in your mind. You have this, the, you, this sower, this farmer, he's scattering the seed, and he's doing it indiscriminately. He's doing it everywhere. Maybe you process it with your spouse, or maybe with your children, or someone you labor alongside. You get their take. Hey, this Jesus guy, you've heard about him, right? He told this story about this guy scattering these seeds. Does that mean anything to you? Why would he do that? He had a captive audience. Why, is he, why did he tell this story? What's your take? Maybe your imagination starts to run wild with the story, not just what it means in abstract, but maybe you start to ask that crazy question. Does this mean something for me? Is this important to me in some way? Is there something spiritually significant, not just in the abstract, but for my life and my connection to the God of the universe in this story? Maybe a few months later, you start planning a second trip back to see this Jesus. One of Jesus' favorite methods of teaching was through the use of parables like this one, like the one we heard last week, like the ones we're going to hear for a few months. Jesus' parables were these short, typically short, illustrative stories that typically communicate deep truths about the coming of his kingdom and what life looks like in that kingdom. What does it like when Jesus' kingdom arrives? Here's what it looks like. But, but their stories are told in such a way that they require you to work. They require you to work to understand. They're usually meant to inspire further reflection or often meant to provoke or shock you in some way. One commentator compared the parables to good political cartoons. I think that's right. But not everyone responded in the same way. Some people were drawn in. The hearing of this thing, as abstract as it was, it caused them to kind of lean forward in their seat a little bit, to soften, to come close. Some were pushed away. Some were just confused. And actually, that's how it was supposed to be. That wasn't a flaw in the system or the storytelling method Jesus employed. That's actually what he wanted to happen. So, if we keep reading, we're going to see that Jesus' closest disciples often didn't know what to make of Jesus' teaching. And I know it realized it and said that we're in Mark chapter 4. You can turn there now. Mark chapter 4. So it starts with this parable. And then we get to verse 10. It says, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. So now we've got this, this subgroup away from the big crowd asking him, Jesus, what's up with these parables? And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Clear now? <laughs> Jesus, why the parables? He says that in response. So what we see here, we can start to piece together something, though. The parables almost, they become like a Rorschach test for his hearers. You know Rorschach test? I don't even know if that's still used in anymore commonly, but, you know, you've got the ink blot or whatever, 
and you know you're supposed to tell your psychiatrist or whatever what you see and if it's something about like your mom then you're probably a really disturbed person or something like that um but it's it's like that it's a it's an it's a rorschach test it's something that that is put before you and it reveals something about you reveals something about you people will either in these parables recognize the divine wisdom of god in them or they'll see them as stupid and a waste of time matthew 13 12 jesus says for the one who has more will be given it's in the context of these parables and and uh more will be given and he will have an abundance but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the parables are to draw those with the eyes to see and the ears to hear in, to stir their imaginations, to invite them to more and more and more reflection and to reveal truth over time, the deep things of the kingdom. But the parables were also to conceal the message from those without those ears to hear. Those who aren't interested, those who just want to go pick a fight with Jesus, those who are just looking to trap him, those who just want to have ammo to discredit him, those who are just not interested, those who think this guy's weird, those who don't want his authority in their lives, whatever. When they hear the parables, they will be concealed from them. The parables will be concealed. The meaning, the richness, the depth, the wisdom. So how people respond to Jesus' parables often reveals how people respond to the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing into the world. And it's incredibly important to note, it's incredibly important to note that Jesus includes a modified quote of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. That's the last part of what we just read. He's quoting Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, where God tells Isaiah to bring his prophetic message to God's people, even though God knows they're not going to receive it. So Jesus, so, so, so that's important context for this, lest you think this is like this really sort of like close Jesus who says, I'm not interested in people actually coming to find me. I'm trying to be purposefully, you know, keep everyone at arm's length. No, no, no. Jesus desires, we know, that none should perish and offers the forgiveness of sins, interest, entrance into his kingdom to all. And here he identifies himself with Isaiah, the genuine prophet of God, whose message will be rejected by many with hard hearts. Jesus makes that crucial connection. Question for you. Have you ever hated, like, a work of art, a film, a book, whatever? I'm not really, like, a high art person. I, I, I don't think I'm smart enough or have the attention span. I certainly don't have the training to appreciate much of it. For me, it's books, films, an album, whatever. Have you ever had this experience where something like that, whatever it is, high, low, whatever, you name it, you encounter it a first time, and it's just totally alien. And maybe it makes you mad. Maybe you hear all the buzz about it, all the hype. You've read the blogs about it, the articles, whatever. Your friends are raving about it. You're like, I don't get this, and I hate this. I hate it. But there's something in there that you don't decide to just leave it at that. You come back again, and you listen again. And maybe that time you're like, ah, I don't know. And then you listen again. Okay, I'm getting something here. You listen again. And by 20 listens, this is like the favorite piece of music you've ever listened to. It's your all-time favorite album. Has anyone actually had that experience? You hated the thing, and you came back around, and it's one of your favorites. Like seven of us. Okay. <laughs> I thought this was a surefire illustration. No, this has happened with all, so many of the great kind of canonical albums throughout kind of pop music history uh, that we now, everyone regards, oh, yeah, that's great. Even if I don't like it, that's great. They happen this way. Um, all kinds of things. 
I think of the one, the one for me that sticks out, and it, all the drama happened before I was even listening to this music, but the album Kid A by Radiohead. Anybody a fan of that record? Yeah, a few of us? Yeah, Radiohead, if you know that band, they're, they're, they're firmly in their elder statesman point of their career at this point, but you know, this really uh, impressive like, like Britpop, alternative rock, uh, British band uh, that had a couple of great records, uh, and then with this album OK Computer kind of really cemented themselves as just these geniuses who were so forward-thinking and amazing, did for kind of guitar, rock, music, what, uh, what few people had done. And then they came back with their next album. Expectations are through the roof, but it was this weird, electronic, idiosyncratic, dense, strange, sad, mellow thing called Kid A. And no longer were there loud guitars, no longer were there sort of anthemic choruses. No longer was there any of this stuff. It was weird, insular, electronic music. And people hated it. Most people hated it. But they came back. And they listened again. And they came back. And they listened again. They came back and they listened again. And now it's very, very, very common if you're a fan of that band to say that's their masterpiece. Not only their masterpiece, but that changed the landscape of, of, of the music that followed. Still changing it. We could, we could use countless examples there, but parables function like that. You come to the thing, and you're either said, I don't want anything to do with it, or you say, maybe there's something there. You listen again, and you read again, and you talk with your friends, and you come back, and you come back, and you come back. Another interesting thing about parables, before we move on, they almost work like commentaries on what we're seeing elsewhere in the gospel. So this one comes in the Gospel of Mark. The first four chapters of the Gospel of Mark, they include Jesus just kind of out ministering, kind of around this area, around Capernaum. And people, as they come up to Jesus, like they, they respond to him in all these different ways. And so this, these parables, this parable in particular, almost functions as what we've already seen throughout Mark's Gospel. As God, as, as, just as Jesus explains that the parable of the sower is about how the word of God is going out through Jesus and it produces different results in different hearers, it's no coincidence that the first three chapters of Mark is about pointing out radically different reactions to Jesus' ministry. Some people fall at his feet. Some people begin to follow him. Some people travel long distance to hear him. Some people want to kill him. Some people want to kill him. It's all along the spectrum. And so this parable and these, these four different types of soil give us a grid through which we can actually begin to evaluate the people that we see reacting to Jesus throughout Mark's gospel and really all the gospels. Okay, so that's parables. That's parables. This parable, though, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the parable of the sower is given as the first parable in a string of parables about the kingdom. New Testament scholar, scholar Klein Snodgrass says, it's a parable about hearing the message of the kingdom. Or you could say, this parable is a parable about parables. It's a parable about parables. You could say it's also a parable about every time you or me or anyone else comes into contact with the words of God. Whether that's through the ancient scriptures, whether we're here together, in our homes, wherever, anytime you encounter the word of God, this parable, the, the ideas of this parable, it's at play. And it's at play in your life. So, fortunately for us, this is one of the very few parables where Jesus actually uh, explains, through the gospel writer, a direct explanation. So let's keep reading. We go on to verse 13. 
So Jesus said to his disciples, he said to them, this group gathered around him asking these questions. He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Others are the ones sown among the thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, and the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. So, just to say a couple things, that's nice. Jesus just, you want to know what this means? Here you go. Here it is. We get the, we get the backstage kind of explanation here. We see the seed is the word of God. It's the message that Jesus is bringing, the message about his kingdom, it's his values, it's uh, his gospel even. It's all the things of, of Jesus. And we see that, first of all, this is not a kingdom. This is a really important point, I think. It's not a kingdom that spreads by force or by coercion, but by news, by words. That's important. Jesus doesn't choose for the spread of his, of his word going out to talk about a soldier with his sword or his AK-47 or whatever, going out and forcing the knees to bend at threat of violence. No, for, him, for himself, for his word going out, he says, I'm a farmer sprinkling seed, and I'm doing it indiscriminately. Even on soil that you know is not going to produce anything, he doesn't get matter. He's that generous. He's that giving. And the invitation goes out and it goes out and it goes out to everyone. And then you've got the four soils. And I'm guessing if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've heard sermons on this and you've, pro- you've heard like each of these soils and a long like kind of explanation of it. I just don't think we really need that. I just don't think we really need that. It's, the image is so simple to repeat Jesus. We've got the path or the road. There's four different types of soils. The first is not soil at all. It's just a, it's a road. It's hard. You would not expect anything to grow there. It's dense. And nothing even has the chance to grow. And what Jesus says is that Satan takes away the word before it can do anything. That's one type of hearer of the words of Jesus. The second is the rocky ground enthusiastic reception it says there's no root there's no there's nothing deep growing down there so when persecution comes and persecution always comes persecution always comes if you're going to be faithful to Jesus if you're going to take his things to heart if you're going to actually live in the countercultural way he demands of us then persecution will come it might be uh, god forbid in, in in hard forms violent forms uh deeply painful forms, or it might be in soft forms. It might be in soft forms, but persecution does come when it does. This kind of soil does not produce the fruit. There's a third, thorny ground. The root seems to take, but comforts and other agendas crowd it out. Alternative desires. You, 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 he talks about the lure of money and wealth. He talks about other desires. This is this is. You catch a vision for Jesus. You hear what he what you, you hear his message. You see his beauty. You see the way he treats them, everyone. 
the most vulnerable, whatever, you're drawn to this Jesus. You want to internalize his teachings. You want to receive him. But man, this thing over here sure does start to look shiny over time. The newness wears off. Ah, is Jesus really worth sticking close to? Man, this thing looks good. This thing looks good. And once again, no fruit is produced. And then the fourth is the good soil. They lean in. These people accept the message, and it begins to produce all kinds of fruit, all kinds of yields of fruit in these people's lives. And I don't think we have to belabor that, because I don't, I don't think the, the purpose of this parable is for you or for me to spend a lot of time agonizing over, okay, what kind of soil am I? Am I this soil? Am I that soil? Am I what? There's one command in this, in this section of teaching from Jesus. One command. This teaching begins and ends with the same command. You know what it is? Hear. Listen. It's the command that bears on you and bears on me every time we open up the scriptures. Again, whether that's in the privacy of your home or here together, gathered as a community, every time we open up another one of Jesus' parables over the next three months even. Hear. Listen. Listen. Hear. Don't get caught up on, have I been this kind of soil, been that kind of soil, whatever. The command comes to you afresh today. Hear this Jesus. Listen to him. It's another way of putting, you know, the story of the transfiguration, you know, recorded in, in uh, three of the Gospels. Jesus takes his closest disciples up on this mountain and his glory shines forth, divine glory. His clothes transform white. He's brighter than anything you could imagine. It's amazing. You see the eternal divine glory of Jesus. You don't just see him as the humble carpenter. That's who he is, absolutely. He chose to come that way. That reveals deep things about the heart of this God we worship. But that is like, is pierced through with his, with the divine weightiness of who he is. It shines on them. And the, the booming voice of God comes down from heaven. You remember this? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then God the Father speaking gives a command. Anyone remember what it is? Listen to him. Very good, Bob. <laughs> listen to him. Not even listen to, not booming voice of heaven, listen to me. God the Father speaks. Listen to him. Listen. That's the command. And at this point, we have to ask, what are the alternatives? Because Jesus ad admits the reality. He admits that, you know, Persecution will come, so maybe one alternative as things get hard, maybe an alternative is just, I just want to protect my comfort. I want ease. <laughs> I don't want things to be difficult. Jesus did promise, in this life you will have trouble in this world. Maybe an alternative is just pursuing, pursuing peace at all cost as the ultimate end. He says other things will call for your attention. Other things will seem attractive. The luster of Jesus, you know, many of us have had that experience. You come to faith in the Lord, you're fired up, you're excited. Nothing seems more beautiful, nothing's more exciting. Your life for the first time has purpose. The, the, the sin and the guilt and the shame you've carried for so long, it vanishes under the lavish grace of this God who died for you to save you. Even on your worst day. And you're fired up, but over time, as with everything, the luster can fade. The brightness can dim. The joy can diminish. Other things begin to look good. So what are the alternatives? 
this applies. Whether you're a follower, so I'm talking about people who've been following Jesus for a long time. What are the alternatives? And I say that to you as well. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what, I mean, I assume there are some people in this room, hopefully, that are not self-consciously followers of Jesus. And if you're here, we're so glad you're here. Keep coming back. Even if you disagree with every single thing that comes out of our mouths up here, we want you here. We want you here. And more than that, we need you here. But for you too, I ask, what's the alternative? What's the anchor of your life? What's the foundation of your life? What's the thing that's giving your life meaning and hope and purpose? Then again, if you're a Christian, what are the things that you are repeatedly tempted to jump ship from the way of Jesus when life gets difficult? And it does. Is there a philosophy out there? A secular philosophy, especially since the Enlightenment, it's just, to me, my assessment is just one long story of, of people correcting one another, but as they do, just eroding the foundation that we might know anything at all in this life. And you're left, like, in post, post-1960s with things like deconstructionism and just absolute subjectivity, that there's no meaning there, there's no meaning to find except the pursuit of power. People try to build their lives on that, but it seems tough. <laughs> I don't think people can live that way. I think, I think it, people who, who give themselves to those systems, they find themselves violating them system, those systems because at bottom, you can't live there. You can say you do, but you can't. About money, career, pursuing more and more and more, the bigger house, the bigger house closer into the city, getting closer to Laurelhurst or whatever, I don't know. The, the Northwest Hills or something like that. If you live there, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But money, career. I've heard, I've heard Josh White use this as an illustration a lot. We, we know there's nothing there on the other side of that. We always think, we get on the hamster wheel. We think, man, we're going to get there eventually. We're going to get there eventually. This is going to satisfy at some point if I could only just dot, dot, dot. But how many times do we have to read the stories of celebrities who seemingly have, have everything? No limit to, to able to indulge their passions, indulge their interests, indulge their joys, their whims, whatever, their artistic pursuit, you name it. Who end up giving up on life altogether. They've tasted the things that so many assume will bring final fulfillment in life, and they say, life's meaningless, life's not worth it. Even with those things in their hands, we should heed those warnings. Sex, it's a big one. And I don't think any of us could deny that Jesus' sexual ethic is becoming more and more out of step with the norms of our culture at breakneck, breakneck speed. And it's hard. It's hard to live out. It's hard to confess that you follow Jesus, that you are a, a disciple of Jesus, even with your sexuality. But man, can sexual expression carry the weight and provide the scaffolding for lives that our culture tries to make it do? Does unchecked, unlimited sexual expression really lead to human flourishing? Does it really cherish and dignify life? Is it really a sturdy enough foundation on which you can create meaning out of an otherwise meaningless existence? I say no. Or power. Not power. Powers sometimes seems fun to pursue. But man, it only seems to corrupt and curdle the human soul, doesn't it? It seems like a truism in this life. The more power you have, what is it? Lord, the Lord Acton quote, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, something like that. 
Have we seen an, have we seen a counterexample to that in this life? Man, it's rare. It is rare to see someone who has full power to exercise their will not become turned in on themselves and grotesque as a result. And even if you got all the power in the world, even if it didn't corrode your soul, even if it made you miserable, you still have to give it up when you die, don't you? I don't think that's the, that's the silver bullet either. So I don't know. I, I ask as a legitimate question to you, something for you to process as, you, as, as we're worshiping, as you leave here, as you go about your week. What are those, those ships you look to jump to when things get hard, when Jesus feels difficult or unexciting? What are the things that glimmer off in the distance? And even if you sit down and you prayerfully, critically evaluate those and you say, okay, those all seem like genuine dead ends, that's not final proof that Jesus' way isn't also a dead end. My point for now is that I just don't think there's anything finally satisfying, death-defeating, truth, love, goodness, and beauty-creating that you can jump to. And the story of Jesus instead is that there's a God, but you know what? This God who exists, who's there, who is not silent, he's actually not a tyrant. And he's not distant. And he's not evil. And he's not vindictive. You want to know how we know? Because he's come into this world. He's revealed himself through his scriptures, through the prophets, but finally in his son. You want to get the clearest, closest look at the God of the universe? You look at Jesus of Nazareth laying his life down for you. It's as though he was without sin, though he was perfect, though he never did the wrong thing, though he never abused his unlimited power, he chose to take on the form of a servant. He emptied himself. He did all these things. He came close to those who no one else would. And he laid down his life. The greatest act someone can do, laying down your life for a friend, even for an enemy. He went to the cross bearing the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. He took all that consequences into himself and he really genuinely died. The God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, died. They saw him hanging there lifeless. They put him in a grave. They put him in a tomb. And his disciples despaired. They thought the whole thing was over. But he raised the new life. And when he did, he didn't come back with the sword and say, okay, Rome, okay, <laughs> high priests, now it's, time, now it's time to go Rambo or whatever. He offered grace. He came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And he offers for the, <laughs> for the low, low price of simply trusting him, putting your faith in him, believing in him, giving yourself to him. He gives you genuine forgiveness. He gives you hope for a new life, a resurrection life with him and with his whole community, his whole family of people from all time together with real things to do on a recreated, perfected world, things to pursue, joys to experience in community together around Jesus, the King. It's good, friends. The gospel is good news.
it is good news. So, instead of belaboring this parable anymore, this parable about parables, this parable about the hearing of the word of God, I, I, say, we do, I say we do this. I say we read it one more time, and we just ask Jesus to give us those ears to hear, those eyes to see, that heart to receive what he has for us here that we would heed his command when he says, listen. Amen? Okay. Close your eyes. You're back on, the, back on the Judean hillside. These are the words of Jesus. Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. It yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, we want those ears. And I don't think we can willpower it. I don't think we can force it. We need you. We need you. Fortunately, your grace, you are gracious and merciful and loving and generous. So for all of us, Father, for those of us that have been walking with you for a long time, maybe feel the, the, the prick of kind of soft persecution, embarrassment, ostracism for our faith, Maybe for those of us who just feel the desire for something new, the temptations of the shiny new object, Lord, or the new worldview, the new philosophy, the new pursuit, the new job, whatever. We pray that you give us the ears to hear, that we would listen, Lord. We'd listen today. We'd listen next week. We'd listen this evening. We'd listen in the morning. We'd listen at work. We'd listen at home. We'd listen whenever we're tired with our children. We'd listen when we're alone and lonely. We'd listen when we're in community. We'd listen when we're amongst friends and amongst enemies. Make us listeners, Father. Lord, on my best days, I know there is no one else to turn to. There's nothing else. There's no foundation that won't erode and crumble. There's no God that won't kill me in the end. Except for you. We thank you, Father, for who you are, that you're not some other way. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that you're a God infinitely and equally concerned both with justice and righteousness and with mercy and grace. And that you worked it out. You worked it out on the cross, Father. So as we have some time together, Lord, help us to be listeners. Even as we sing, may we listen. May we listen. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.